Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Waco, Texas is a small city of around 140,000 people. It sits midway between Dallas and Austin, and you may have seen it in the news recently as the venue for one of former President Donald Trump's first campaign rallies for the 2024 election. It was here that he declared to thousands, I am your warrior, I am your justice. But why Waco? Well, 30 years ago this month, the infamous Waco siege ended in a gunfight with federal agents and a burning inferno that killed 70. For some, like the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh, it was an inspirational moment, one that would push him to commit the largest, fundamental, far-right terrorist attack that the US has ever seen. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to tell us more about Waco, I've invited award winning author and historian Stephen Telty onto the podcast. Stephen is the author of a new book, Koresh The True Story of David Koresh and the Tragedy at Waco. And it's from his research that we can step beyond the headlines to understand who was involved and why the siege at Waco ever took place. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Are you well? I'm good. It's great to be here. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast. And today we're going to focus in on a very controversial topic and perhaps one that is an era-defining moment in the domestic politics of the United States. The Waco siege in Waco, Texas in 1993, something that I teach to my students at university as part of our history of terrorism and counterterrorism as a result of the fact that it was the Waco siege that inspired Timothy McVeigh to undertake the Oklahoma bombings in 1995. But that's something that we are going to get to, Stephen. Perhaps take us back to the beginning here. Tell us about the siege at Waco. How did it begin? Who was involved? Sure. So on February 28th, 1993, the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, raided the compound of David Koresh and his Branch Davidian followers. So there were about 100 people held up in this huge building and the ATF basically conducted a frontal assault and it had been horribly planned. So David Koresh knew they were coming. He was fully armed along with his followers. And what resulted was a gun battle in which several Davidians died and four ATF agents also lost their life. So, you know, we can talk about the investigation that led up to it, but the thing you should probably know about that raid is that it wasn't really the guys on the ground who messed up, the men and women. It was really the middle management, the planners, who'd 
failed to understand that David Koresh left the compound uh, quite often. He would go to guitar shops, he would go to restaurants in town. And so they could have nabbed him. This could have been a five-minute affair. But because of this kind of arrogance and incompetence within the ATF, we had this huge event that became a cable news phenomenon. And as you said, still sort of influences American politics to this day. So this siege that takes place in 1993 is all about trying to capture David Koresh and to bring him to some sort of justice. And correct me if I'm wrong, based upon the accusations that him and his followers had been producing methamphetamines, had been selling these, and had a number of gun violations. And this siege just goes on for two months? It goes on for 51 days. 51 days. Yeah, it was a long time. I watched it live on CNN. I was... 28 years old, living in New York City. And I was just astonished by what was happening in my country. So I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was because, you know, I did spend all that time watching it and I came away thinking, what did I just witness? I had very little understanding of why David Koresh was there, why the FBI and the federal government had decided to go after him. So I decided to go sort of back to the origin story, if you will, the life story of David Koresh. Well, perhaps we should start there as well, Stephen. Tell us then, who was David Koresh? This is someone in your book, as I was going through and reading it, who you describe as having a an old boy's charm about him that could work on your mind. So is this somebody who was quite manipulative? He could obviously accrue quite the devout following. Who was David Koresh? So David Koresh grew up, born in 1959, in the middle of Texas in a working class community. Important thing to know is that it was not sort of a positive event in the family that he was born into. His mom was impregnated at 13. This upset the family. There were Seventh-day Adventists, you know, a Christian sect that has very sort of conservative mores. And so really from the beginning, things were off. His father never really became part of his life. His stepfather humiliated and beat him. Uh, There was sexual abuse. He was abused by a family member. And his grandfather, who he was actually named after, rejected him. So what you find in his early life is this pattern of sort of abuse and rejection by older men. He did have love in his early life. I mean, his grandmother adored him. His mother thought he was quite cute and intelligent. But David Koresh was not born a monster. He was born a narcissist, definitely. He had a big ego. But I think it's these early wounds to his narcissism, this rejection, this humiliation, where we start to see this need for a grand life. And to get there, of course, he did become quite a dark and manipulative figure. But I have to say, in my research in the beginning, he really walked the walk. He tried to be a good Christian. He was giving of himself. But those early days returned to him. And when he got power... He used it to sort of make up for what he thought was a terrible childhood. There's so many questions that I want to ask you about David and, of course, how it is that one becomes a cult leader. What is it that he believed? Well, he grew up in a sort of Adventist household. So one thing you have to realize that he was growing up in Dallas in the 1960s. And Dallas was sort of the epicenter of right-wing conspiracy theorists, of anti-federal government activism. It was really kind of a cuckoo place, if you think about it. On the radio, in the newspapers, super conservative. 
and sort of fusing religion and politics in a way that was kind of unique to the country. So they really, these commentators that he would hear on the air or even in conversations with his family, believed that the federal government had become allied with Satan, believe it or not, that the federal government was sort of selling out the American people to evil. And so this is something that formed him early on. And what David became sort of known for He memorized parts of the Bible, but he was especially interested in the book of Revelation, which, of course, is the end times story. What happens when there's a final battle between good and evil and Jesus comes back and he has 144,000 soldiers with him. So David wanted to be part of that remnant that would sort of battle Babylon in the end times. Um, That's all in the book of Revelation. He became obsessed with the seven seals, which is sort of the countdown to the end times. So if you want to talk about his theology, it's very much an end times theology, as was the theology of the Branch Davidians. So when he eventually gets to Waco in his early 20s, there is kind of a theological fit between the two. So tell us a little about Waco itself then. In terms of the compound where he and the Branch Davidians lived, is this something that David set up himself and established? Or is this something that he became a member of and then ended up rising to lead? Sure. So Waco, the Branch Davidian compound, had been around since the 30s. It had been through different leaders, prophets. And by the time David got there, it was being led by a woman named Lois Roden who was very much a traditional Branch Davidian, believed that the end times were coming, but she would never say when. So she led the group. She was in her 60s. Her husband had died. And David Koresh showed up. And in the beginning, he was really a nobody. He was sort of a handyman. He just kind of hung around, you know, listened to the Bible studies, and slowly became convinced that he could lead this group. And how he did it was basically through manipulation. He either fell in love or pretended to fall in love with Lois Roden. And she was gobsmacked to have this young, handsome man, you know, pursuing her. So David Koresh was very good at sensing people's needs. If you were looking for spiritual relief, he would focus on that. If your love life was not going well, he could sort of chameleon-like adapt himself to that. So this is one of the early sort of clues, I think, in how to become a cult leader, is that you read people very well. And he did that. And there was a power struggle. Lois Roden's son, George, thought he was the prince who was going to inherit the throne. And all of a sudden, this interloper shows up. And so there was a battle. There was an actual gunfight in 1986 where David Koresh and his men were in a gunfight with George Roden. And the important thing about that moment, seven years before the Waco tragedy, is that David was arrested and thrown in jail and charged with attempted murder. And he found the experience so humiliating. It was a return to his childhood of being sort of lorded over by older men in authority. And he told the sheriffs at the end of that trial, where he was actually acquitted, he said, you'll never see me again. I'm never coming back to this jail. And I think that plays into, you know, the FBI negotiations later, where he's just adamant that he will not come out because he knows what's waiting for him. And that's probably a life term in jail. So let's go back to that moment, like you say, in 1993. We've got David and a few. How many followers do we have left inside the compound at this point? About 100. So there are about 100 followers inside. They've been in there for over 50 days, and they're in deep and quite intense, meaningful, 
and personal negotiations between the FBI and David himself. I was going through some of the transcripts that you have in your book, and it's quite phenomenal. He's saying that, you know, he'll go out for a beer with the agents, or then he starts to try and manipulate them himself a little bit. I mean, what is it that David wanted to try and get out of those negotiations? Did he ever think that he would be able to walk out a free man? Or was this that final, definitive and quite literally biblical battle to the death that he always knew was going to take place? You know, it's a great question. What did David want? And I think what you have to realize is that David had always been able to use his verbal brilliance to sort of get the things he wanted. He was just amazing when he was in front of a crowd and he was doing a Bible study. He just outshone people like Lois Rodin, who kind of just read from the text and gave kind of the standard interpretations. David was brilliant in sort of connecting different parts of the Bible. He had this dazzling style that sort of sucked you in. He was very much a performer. So I think when he got on the phone, he did think it was possible he might talk his way out of it or at least come to some arrangement where he would keep his freedom. But of course, the FBI, there were four federal agents dead. This was a national story. This was Bill Clinton's first domestic crisis. So there was no way that the FBI was just going to sort of let him walk. And what you do see in those transcripts, like you said, he had that old boy charm. He was like a country preacher. He could really get people on his side. But it always came to two different hard lines. The FBI demanded that he come out, and David demanded that he stay with his most ardent followers. And what he came to believe as the process went on is that the FBI and their raid was part of the story of the end times. Their armored vehicles that were sort of going back and forth in front of the compound were actually biblical chariots. He thought that scripture was being fulfilled so that he was leading his people really into a hopeful phase. They were going to be transformed into these eternal beings, fight next to Christ against Babylon, and they were going to live forever. So in order for that to be fulfilled, they sort of had to go through a baptism of fire. So, you know, the eventuality, what you saw on the screen was sort of in David's mind. The fire was a biblical symbol. It was a purifying fire. So he and his followers were looking out at this scene in front of them and seeing it through biblical eyes. Whereas the FBI just wanted a tactical solution to this problem to get the children and the men and women out and to prosecute David Koresh. So there were two different visions of what was happening in Waco. And of course, it led straight to the tragedy. Well, before we get to the tragedy itself, to what extent, Stephen, from your extensive research, can you come to the conclusion that David actually believed these things? Or was this a power mechanism? Or was this something that was tied in to the, the elements of drug production that the FBI alleged were going on there? Well, let me just say the stories of methamphetamine, those were false. And the ATF and the FBI knew this. It was really the gun charges that were the most serious. There was also allegations, of course, of sexual abuse of young girls. But that was not a federal crime. That was a state crime. And Texas had opened an investigation had never been able to get the children to testify against David. So really the drug charge was a red herring invented by the ATF. It had been there in the past, but David had sort of cleaned it up. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. 
Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's fascinating, Stephen, because David Troy, the Chief of Intelligence for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearm, said in a report that all of this, this this selling and producing of methamphetamines, was part of a fundraising effort by David. So if you've got the head of intelligence saying that, you think it would be true. But this is all part of trying to create some sort of pretext to go and storm the compound. Yes, and specifically in order to, believe it or not, use helicopters from the state there had to be what they call a drug nexus. That was just part of the regulations. So, you know, there had been rumors and suspicions about drugs at Waco. It had been true under George Rodin, under the previous leader. But David had cleaned that up. He was not into drugs in the same way that George Rodin was. So in order to get, as you said, this kind of blacken the image of the Branch Davidians, in order to get the equipment they needed for a, a big raid on the compound, They went with these rumors, and there was no proof behind them. One thing that is interesting about this whole affair is that, you know, there are many sort of myths and rumors and conspiracy theories about what the government did at Waco. Did the FBI snipers fire into the compound during the raid? I found no evidence of that. I didn't find a conspiracy. 
what I found was arrogance, incompetence, and then a cover-up. After the initial raid by the ATF, they started to blame the media, saying the media had tipped them off. That was not true. They started to say that they didn't know that David knew they were coming, that they weren't aware that he'd been tipped off. That was also true. They knew that David had been warned. They were just really covering their asses, to be honest. And they told their own agents not to speak to the media about what really happened. So when I spoke to a lot of the agents on the ground, they were very bitter towards the ATF administration. They felt they'd been sent in in a horrible plan, and then they'd been blamed for it at the end. And I found much of that to be true. But one thing still confuses me, Stephen, and I'm sure it confuses our listeners as well who know about this history. Why is it that the FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms chose to focus on Waco? It's not like there aren't a number of different, very controversial compounds with quite controversial beliefs that operate without, well, any sort of uh, outside control in the United States. So was Waco about sending a message to what was perhaps a a worryingly anti-establishment, anti-federal government movement across the United States, steeped in a right-wing ideology? and it was about saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Well, you have to remember that this was all pretty new on the American scene. You know, the militias that sprang up after Waco were not as prominent then. So Waco and before it, the confrontation at Ruby Ridge were really sort of the opening shots in this sort of war between the federal government and the far right. What I found is that, you know, the ATF's charges in the warrant were actually true. He did have illegal guns in that compound. He had a 50 caliber military sniper rifle. He had automatic weapons. You know, he was priming for war. And this idea that the ATF was sort of going after a certain element of the American public, far right, the gun lovers, the Second Amendment people, I don't find that to be particularly true. What I do find is that they planned it so badly because they had won so many of these battles. I mean, the ATF had conducted thousands of these raids in their history against drug gangs or gun runners, and they failed to account for the special nature of what Waco was. This was a, a fervent religious group. And the idea that they're equivalent to drug runners is just a stupidity that I just cannot get my mind around because... These people were there to defend their leader and defend their faith. So it's a completely different animal. They didn't really prepare for that. They didn't acknowledge it once they were there, that this was the reason that they were going in. And I know these other myths have have sprung up, and I certainly think the government contributed to the lethal nature of what happened, but not through sort of a political conspiracy. It was more through arrogance and incompetence. Well, take us through those final moments, I guess, those final uh, few hours. When did the FBI decide that enough was enough and it was time to break the siege in an incredibly violent manner? What's interesting about the FBI at Waco is that there were two different camps. There was the negotiators and then there was the tactical team. The tactical team are the guys with the rifles out in the fields, you know, with their eyesights on the compound. And the negotiators are on the phone trying a very sort of conciliatory approach. They want to charm David. They want to get him to trust them. They want to sort of give him things and get things back from him. That's the negotiator's approach. The tactical team wanted to sort of intimidate him, to frighten the people to come out. And so these two different approaches were clashing all the time. And eventually, after 51 days, the tactical team won out. They decided to do a 
raid in which they would use armored vehicles to insert tear gas into the compound. And they were going to do it slowly. It could take hours or days. But what happened is that once they started putting the gas in, the Davidians fired on them with their guns, and it sort of changed the nature of that morning. They started to pump in immense quantities of tear gas, and after a few hours, fires started to appear. And of course, that's another great question about Waco, who started the fires. And I think we do have a definitive answer to that. The FBI had inserted listening devices, bugs, into the compound. We actually have transcripts of Davidian saying, you know, bring that kerosene over here, light the fire here. So it was definitely the Davidians who were really looking to draw the FBI into a lethal trap. They wanted to sort of take a few agents of Babylon with them as they transformed themselves into these eternal beings. So still they were looking very much at this as a biblical event. And in order to sort of really trigger this world-ending war, these end times, they wanted to take some FBI men with them. But of course, the FBI didn't enter the compound. They just used their vehicles to insert the tear gas. And the fire spread incredibly quickly. And really, in 20 minutes, the whole compound was either collapsed or still burning. That's where the people lost their lives. Stephen, what was it like watching that at the time? What impact did it have on the American political and public landscape? Initially, polls show that the American public really supported the government. They thought of Koresh and the others as these kind of Jesus freaks or these gun freaks and just didn't understand why they were there, what the motivations were. And I have to say, back then, I came away from the TV feeling the same way. I just thought these people had done it to themselves. And I do believe David Koresh is largely responsible for, you know, initiating this tragedy. But the strange thing about Waco is that other American tragedies, say in 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, there's always a hero. Either we find one or we manufacture one. And that's just a tradition in American history. It's probably a tradition in many other countries. But in Waco, there are no heroes. Nobody comes out looking good. It's just a tragedy of sort of power and obsession and this desire to be close to a messiah on one side and sort of on the FBI side, I feel it's just another display of power, but in a different way. And these two sort of irreconcilable forces met and people lost their lives. And of course, the violence doesn't end there. In fact, you could argue that it starts with Waco because there were a number of people gathered roughly three miles away on a hill overlooking the compound watching what was going on, including watching it burn. And one of those drawn to Waco was a 24-year-old army veteran named Timothy McVeigh. Tell us, Stephen, how does Timothy McVeigh come into this story? You know, it's interesting. McVeigh and Koresh actually have similar backgrounds. Both of them were frustrated in their personal romances. Both of them felt unfulfilled with their jobs. And they really turned and looked at the country and blamed the federal government for a lot of what was happening. So Timothy McVeigh shows up at Waco. He's selling little bumper stickers on the hood of his car and he's talking to journalists. And what he's saying is that this is an act of tyranny. The federal government has attacked these people because of their beliefs. They're anti-gun, they're anti-religion, they're anti-Christian. And what McVeigh wanted to do at Oklahoma City was sort of give a response to Waco to punish those who had carried it out. So he attacked a federal building 
and of course was later executed for what he'd done. But it wasn't just McVeigh. After 1993, you see a huge rise in the number of militias in America. And these are often right-wing paramilitary groups, you know, intent on opposing the government. Over time, this attitude really infiltrates the American mainstream. You see polls increasingly saying that the federal government was wrong in what it did. And this has led to Waco really becoming kind of a shrine in the same way that the Alamo or Plymouth Rock is in American history. That's where Donald Trump launched his 2024 campaign because the symbolism is now one of freedom versus tyranny in the rights imagination. Waco is the place where all these conspiracy theories that have been around for decades, they weren't new, became visible. So instead of them being rumors and myths or misconceptions, you had actual footage on CNN of what happens when you stand up to the federal government. And of course, in that 2023 campaign speech that Trump delivered as he's uh, you know, not far off being arrested at this point and being investigated himself by the feds, I guess you could put it like that, you know, he's there saying that the American people need to overcome that deep state. They need to overcome the corruption of the established power. Do you think that when we combine all of this together, when we look at Waco and the tragedy that we can say took place there, and you mix it in with the fact that it does lead to the Oklahoma bombings that was at the time the biggest terrorist attack in the history of the United States. You've got 168 people dead, 19 of whom are children. It's an attack on a federal building. When we combine all that together, Stephen, do you start to worry about the future of right-wing fundamentalism? terrorism in the United States? I'm terrified, to be honest. It's only grown since Waco. I mean, when I saw Waco, I thought it was a one-off. You know, it was just a bunch of misguided people who had sort of taken a wrong turn. But it's really become symbolic. And what's really fascinating is that Koresh and Trump share some techniques. What they're both able to do is not only have their followers half believe in these conspiracy theories or these, you know, ideas about the deep state, but literally to inhabit these theories and to see the entire world through them. So these rumors about the deep state were things that David Koresh heard in 1960 when he was growing up in Dallas. They'd been around forever, but his followers were willing to sort of risk their lives in order to prove that they were true. And what Trump does in a certain way is the same thing. I mean, his followers see everyday events as sort of prophecy, as indications that one side is winning or the other is winning. So that is, I think, a tragic development in American history where you have these communities and these bubbles who really cannot recognize reality as in the way that the rest of us see it. So you not only have a battle of ideas, you have a battle of realities. And I don't think that's happened quite the same way in American history before. And I think it's just hugely disturbing. And of course, we should say that, that not all Trump followers believe these things. There is a very kaleidoscopic mix of people who do follow former President Trump. But I do think that at this moment in time, as we're going through an election campaigning year, it's histories like Waco that are going to come up again, especially if the, the former president chooses to uh, to hold his campaign rallies there. So tell us, Stephen, what is the name of your book and where can we get it? The name is Koresh, the true story of David Koresh and the tragedy at Waco. It's on Amazon. It's at your independent bookseller. It's on tape. So it's everywhere to be found, hopefully. 
Well, like I said, I do think it's a really important history for our time right now and one that's only going to grow in importance. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.